You're listening to a teaching series by Cross Culture Church of Christ. If you'd like any more information about our church, head to crossculture.net.au. Feel free to share this podcast with others, but please don't alter the content in any way. We hope you enjoy it. Pain is a debilitating thing. Uh, Thankfully, I haven't had a lot of it in my life. Uh, But I remember one episode very clearly. Uh, It was our wedding anniversary and Janet and I went out for dinner and I just couldn't resist the rack of pork ribs. And it was delicious. And of course, the time with Janet was good too. And uh, we went home and fast forward to one o'clock in the morning and I woke up with this excruciating pain in my stomach. Uh, The only way I could get comfortable Uh, was to act like a cat and uh, stand on all fours with my stomach hanging down. And I got some slight relief. But I knew I couldn't uh, stay that way for the rest of my life. Uh, So off to emergency we went. It was gallstones. And the problem was uh, there was a whole lot of fat in my stomach and the gallbladder was trying to break it down. And it was pumping away and spasming. Uh, And uh, that normally works fairly well, but there was a 13 millimetre stone blocking a 6 millimetre duct. Uh, the stomach was calling for more bile, the, the gallbladder was kept, kept pumping it, and uh, that was the pain. And it went on for a week, it took a whole week for that stone uh, to move on. Uh, the thing that frightened me about that episode actually was uh, how narrow my horizons became and how much I turned in on myself. My life was reduced to one quest only. How do I reduce this pain? Uh, medications studying the labels of every bit of food that was going in my mouth to make sure there was no fat in it so the spasming wouldn't increase, and so on. Uh, It was excruciating until that pain went away. And I was really shocked at how little I had to give to anybody else. My ability to give out to others dwindled to nothing. Fortunately, the people around me, like Janet and our family, uh, were good comforters. They weren't like Job's comforters. Uh, They were actually fairly helpful. Poor old Job, he's been in pain uh, for a long time by now and his comforters have not been uh, much help to him. He's, he's been struggling to see the big picture of what God is doing here. He's a righteous man who's lost everything except his trust in God. And for 35 chapters, he has cried out to God for answers, for insight, for comfort, Uh, for vindication, Uh, but there's no answer. Uh, It was like a situation I was in recently, a little bit like it anyway, trying to get hold of my internet provider when uh, the internet wasn't working properly, when the lockdown happened. I tried messaging through their website, I emailed, I phoned, and I hung on for hours as you do. Nothing, not even a squeak out of them. It would have been good to hear from anybody, uh, even if it was the cleaner. And that's what Job feels like, but multiplied by about a thousand times. He's cried out for God to talk to him. He doesn't dare hope that God would talk directly to him. So he's cried out for someone to act as a mediator between him and God. But there's none, as this verse in chapter 9 shows. His friends have failed him miserably. They have presumed to speak on behalf of God to him, 
uh, but they never speak to God on behalf of Job. And then all this changes. 38 verse 1, The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, so this communication dramatically opens up out of a whirlwind and it's the CEO of the whole show who shows up. Not the cleaner, the technician or even a mediator, but God himself. Now this is massive. Job is one of a small band of people in the Old Testament to whom God speaks directly, not through others. And it's Yahweh who's speaking, the self-existent personal God of the covenant. Uh, that's the name that's used for God at the beginning of the book. But in between, in the intervening dialogues, Job and his friends have spoken of God uh, using a more generic name. But here, Yahweh, the covenant God, shows up and speaks directly with Job, a human being. What does this meeting with God look like? Well, God begins like this. Who is this that darkens counsel with words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. You see, Job felt like his problems were so great uh, that his universe had begun to shrink down to him and his problems. God speaks to lift him back into a much bigger picture. God challenges Job and he challenges us through him uh, to get a right perspective, the big picture perspective. Uh, we're not the centre of the universe. God is. So it's not so much about what we think of God and how he fits into our world, uh, but it's about what God thinks of us and how we fit into his world. God's talk with Job consists of 50 questions, one after another. Uh, it sounds pretty confronting and challenging, but it's a common form of teaching in the ancient world uh, where the teacher questions the learner. It's not aggressive, but it points up the areas uh, in which the student's knowledge is good uh, and the areas in which there's more to learn. And in Job's case, uh, as in our case, when it comes to God, there's a lot for us to learn, particularly when we go through difficult things. So God, through these questions, invites Job to come and see, take a look around his universe. It's like a Gardener walking someone around their garden, pointing out the wonderful and beautiful things. Or it's like a brilliant inventor showing their ingenious inventions and how they keep them running and what great things they can do. Uh, it's God showing Job around his universe. So firstly, God focuses on his creative power in verses 4 to 7. He uh, talks about the creation of the world. Uh, like a skilled master builder, through these questions, God says he lays the foundations of the world. He sets out its cornerstone. And uh, the result of all this is so good uh, that the angels shout for joy and the morning stars sing together. Uh, if you've ever been at the MCG when the Aussies hit the winning six in the ashes or, or the Tigers win the grand final, uh, the roar is deafening. You can hear it from miles away. But that's nothing compared to the jubilation uh, when the heavenly hosts saw the creative work of God. It is absolutely awesome. So God asked Job, uh, were you there when all that happened? The unspoken answer, of course, is of course not. None of us were. 
scientists try to project backwards and make educated guesses about how the universe came into being, uh, but not one of us observed it. To get the full story, we need to hear from somebody who was there. And God says that he was and that he made every bit of it. He did it. So the origin of the universe is not something random. It's the work of an all-wise and an all-powerful God. That's God's first point. Now, how does this help Job? Well, Job has said several times that it would have been better if he had never been born or if he had died at birth. What God's saying here is that his existence isn't random or purposeless or even a malicious mistake. He, along with you and me and the rest of the creation, is the work of the all-wise, all-powerful creator who's a personal, relational being who reveals himself. And the fact that God shows up and speaks with Job uh, tells us that God wants to draw him into a deeper relationship with him. Uh, God points out that his knowledge of him and his ways is deficient. And that's why they are talking. Uh, Job has spoken out of ignorance. So first up, God says what Job's going through isn't the random work of a mindless runaway train. It's happening within a universe that's the work of a purposeful creator. And that's something we can remember when we're overwhelmed with pain and grief uh, and something we can encourage one another with. Uh, when friends are going through difficult times. God isn't making mistakes. We are in the context of a created order uh, that is the work of a loving and purposeful creator. But there's more. God just didn't make everything and leave it at that, like some cosmic watchmaker who wound it up and left it running. He goes on to talk about his sustaining and his restraining power. God superintends his creation. In verses 8 to 18, he determines and maintains the boundaries uh, of its workings. So the rest of these two chapters are God going through his intimate involvement in all his creation, that he's the one who keeps it going, that his involvement is active and it's for good. Uh, in 8 to 11, for example, he talks about the boundaries he set for the sea. Now, people in the ancient world feared the sea. It was an unknown, scary place that contained dreaded creatures and monsters. But God says here that he has set the boundaries for the sea to keep within. Thus far you shall come and no further. Furthermore, he goes on to say that God is not indifferent to the evil that's in the world. If He asked Job, Job, have you commanded the dawn so that the wicked can be dealt with, that can come into the light of judgment? that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? The answer, of course, is no. Uh, whenever human beings have tried to rid the world of evil, uh, we've left a terrible mess. Uh, we only have to look at the aftermath of the world wars or even our own attempts uh, to root out the evil in, around us uh, and even in us and in other people. Our attempt to eradicate evil are feeble at best. But God has these things in his oversight. He will deal with them fully and finally. In verse 15, from the wicked, their light is withheld and their uplifted arm is broken. Under the searing light of God's judgment, uh, the power of evil will be broken. Sin will be dealt with. 
That's why he goes on to talk about death in the remaining verses. Because we know from the New Testament, the wages of sin is death. Now, what is God saying through this? He's saying, Job, I'm involved and I'm in charge. The boundaries of what happens on earth, all the scary things we face are within my wise and loving oversight. Job's suffering isn't a runaway train wreck that God doesn't know where it's going to end up. Even though God doesn't cause it directly, it falls within God's wise, purposeful oversight and sustaining restraint. Now, the alternative worldview to this uh, of those who want to leave God out of the equation uh, is a hopeless one. Here's how Richard Dawkins, one of the new atheists, sees it. He says this in his book, uh, River Out of Eden. In a universe of blind physical forces, some people are going to get hurt. Other people are going to get lucky. And you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. What a hopeless view of the world and our involvement in it. But God, in the picture he paints for Job, delivers us from this kind of hopelessness. Uh, God's revelation is a divine mercy. It's full of hope. It doesn't take away his pain, but it puts it in the context of the loving care of an infinitely wise and caring God. And friends, we can take this to heart in our suffering and when our friends are going through difficult times. Uh, read scriptures that remind us of God's sustaining his people and restraining evil and ultimate release uh, into his new creation. And friends, there are many times uh, in my life when I've had to think, okay, I don't understand what's going on here, but I know that God is in control, that he's working out his loving purposes. I remember an incident uh, that happened when we were uh, working in the south of Pakistan and uh, we were involved in helping with a, an eye camp where we went out into a desert region uh, to do eye operations for people who had cataracts, people who otherwise wouldn't be able to access it. We had a truckload of gear with all the stuff on it and some of our helpers were sitting on top of the stuff on the truck. Uh, the driver was a bit harebrained and uh, it was going too fast and the, and the truck took a turn and tipped over. And the two guys on the top, one of them was killed instantly and the other one suffered a terrible brain injury. And he was a key person uh, in the hospital, in our church, in his family, he had a couple of young kids. And uh, I think, God, please, what are you doing? We need this man in our church. We need this man in our hospital. I never got an answer to that question. But I do know that God showed me, Sam, you can trust me. I know what I'm doing. You can trust me with this. I am in control of the world. I am working all things for my sovereign and loving purposes. Sometimes it's the only place we can go, but, and it is the best place we can go to trust our Heavenly Father. Then in chapter 41, God talks about his leash on evil. Uh, in chapter 41, we're introduced to the terrifying beast, Leviathan. Job has already referred to this beast in his depressing cries in chapter 3, uh, where he wishes he'd never been born. 
And he says there are those who would stir up this beast in uh, chapter 3, verse 8. Uh, now, as you read the description in the rest of chapter 41, Leviathan sounds a bit like a giant crocodile. Indeed, some translations have uh, taken the liberty of calling it a crocodile. But it breathes out fire and smoke and has multiple heads and it lives in the sea. In Isaiah, who also mentions Leviathan, is called a serpent. Uh, this beast is so terrifying that everybody flees from it and nobody can tame it or do a deal with it as you might with an aggressive nation. God challenges Job or anyone else to tie it up or put it on a leash and take it home as a pet for your kids or even to tackle it in battle. It's, give it a go, see how you go. He said, you won't try it a second time. Uh, that's what he says uh, about attacking Leviathan. And yet, even though it's frightening and it's untamable by any human, in verse 33, we find out it's a creature. A creature gone horribly wrong, but nevertheless, a lesser being. And on a leash that God holds, he cannot go one inch further than God allows. Uh, and we know that from the end of the Bible that God will do away with this beast who is lined up with Satan. His doom is already sealed, uh, as God foretells in Isaiah. In that day, the Lord with his hard and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. Now God asks Job, can anybody stand against Leviathan? Of course, the answer is no. Nobody even wants to try it. So then he asked the further question, if he is a creature and I'm the creator, can anyone stand before me? Who is he then who can stand before me? God is way more powerful than this ugly beast, this Satan. We know that, of course, from the dialogues at the beginning of the book with Satan, where God limits the work of Satan. And Satan accepts his limits, not that he had a choice. And here at the end of the book, uh, we know it again in God's dialogue with Job, uh, the righteous sufferer, that God has this terrible tormenting beast on a leash. And God ends this section with a declaration of his total rule. He says, who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. As Abraham Kuyper says, there's not an inch of this universe of which Jesus Christ does not say, it is mine. Now, how does this help Job? Well, he knows now from the mouth of God that what he's going through isn't endless and without limit. Satan, the tormentor, is on a leash. But more than that, what he's going through is purposeful. He is coming to know God more deeply and intimately, understanding his wisdom and his good purposes as we'll see next week as we look at his responses uh, to God's revelation. It helps us believers in Christ too, doesn't it? As we know uh, from the New Testament that the one who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. So how does all this help us when we're suffering uh, and when people we love are suffering as New Testament people, as believers? Well, I think we often long for God to speak to us like he spoke to Job, man to man. As he invited Job, stand up like a man, let's talk. Um, but he has done that. Actually, we live this side of the incarnation of God coming into our world in the person of Jesus. 
we have an even greater revelation of God than Job had and of his loving purposes in the world. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, long ago at many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So we know God in a greater way than Job did. But we also live this side of the cross where Jesus, the righteous sufferer, gave his life to deal with the evil and injustice once and for all. We see his personal power over the temptations and assaults of the evil one on his own life, but also in the lives of others. And ultimately we see his victory over Satan in his death on the cross. Uh, as the writer of the Hebrews says, that he destroys the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. The last book of the Bible tells us that this beast, this Satan, will come to a complete end. He'll be thrown into the lake of fire as God's eternal kingdom is ushered in and the new creation comes in and God brings an end to all suffering and pain for his people. So Job, the righteous sufferer, uh, points us to Jesus, the ultimate righteous sufferer who saves us. Uh, so friends, that's how we come into God's family, through the work of Jesus. Uh, and he has given us a wonderful example, hasn't he? In Hebrews 5, the writer says this, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obeyed him. Jesus cried out to God like Job with prayers and supplications, loud cries and tears. And he was heard. How was he heard? He went to the cross. He was strung up on the cross so that you and I could be saved. And through the pain of his suffering and the separation from God and taking on himself the wrath of God, friends, we go free. Friends, let's be encouraged and encourage one another in our suffering that, that God has wisely and purposefully made us. He lovingly watches over our lives and our world and the world that we live in. And that his restraining hand is on the forces of evil that lurk in our world. Let's keep discovering his revelation of himself to us as we read his word to ourselves and to each other. And let's cry out in dependence on him for ourselves and for each other. That we will know him more, love him more and long for that day when we will be with him forever. Friends, let's take some time to respond and reflect uh, and then I'll lead us in prayer together. Our Lord and God, we thank you so much that you have not hidden yourself from us, but that you have revealed yourself to us. I thank you that uh, we know that you're the wise and loving creator of the world, that you're the one who sustains and upholds our world and restrains the forces of evil and will ultimately deal with evil and wickedness. Uh, thank you that we can know in our daily lives that, that you are 
holding a leash on Satan. And thank you that he's a defeated enemy uh, through the work of Jesus on the cross. Lord, help us uh, to keep on fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Uh, help us, Lord, to be faithful uh, to our friends uh, who go through suffering. Help us, Lord, to comfort them truly, to pray for them, uh, to read your word with them uh, and to point them to you. And we pray all this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Friends, as we uh, prepare our hearts to uh, take communion, uh, let's remind ourselves again of the work of Jesus, uh, the ultimate righteous sufferer. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Uh, friends, this is the wonderful gospel in a nutshell here, isn't it? That Jesus suffered. He was obedient uh, to the point of giving up his life. Uh, even though it went against everything that his body was shouting, he was crying and with loud tears, but he was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And friends, that's why we can rejoice, uh, that we, we can give thanks uh, as we take this meal every time we meet uh, so that we can be thankful and joyful uh, in what Jesus has done through his death on the cross. Uh, we're going to take the biscuit which speaks to us of Jesus' body broken for us uh, and the juice which speaks to us of his blood uh, poured out for us. We invite everybody who trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ and follows him to participate with us in this. Let's uh, pray together and then we'll partake. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for your obedience on our behalf, your perfect obedience. We thank you for your great love for us uh, that put our need for salvation ahead of your own personal needs. We thank you that your love is so great. And as we take these elements, Lord, please fill us again with thankfulness uh, to you for what you have done for us and a deeper desire to love and serve you. And we pray it for Jesus' sake. Amen.